Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And this is episode 33, The Wolf You Feed, about Jesse Bernard Winnick, who killed his mother. Hadas Carmeli Winnick had not had an easy life. Some of it was by choice, and some of it was by circumstance. When she fell in love, she picked the worst possible boy, Sherman Winnick, a boy who'd pretty much, according to his daughter Amy's memoirs, been drunk since his 16th birthday and aspired to make it big in the world of rock and roll. He was in a garage band, and he loved to write music. This notion hadn't set well with his own hard-working, Depression-era father who'd worked and scraped to give his son mm -hmm. a good life. A better life than just some kid aging out of a lousy rock and roll band. <laughs> I can hear his dad saying that. I mean, you don't work hard for your kid to not make it, right? No, you don't. But you have to remember that your kids get choices. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so anyway, he didn't think Sherman was trying at all. Sherman fought with his dad constantly, and his drinking only made the relationship worse. He was dedicated to fun and didn't want to hear the stories about how his dad had fought in World War II with General Patton. Not impressed. He didn't have a lot of use for his father's Jewish faith. Sure, the traditions were nice, but Sherman was his own man. Or boy, rather. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he fell in love with a golden-haired girl while still in high school. They'd run away and gotten married, and his dad wasn't having it. They were Jewish. Sherman needed some nice Jewish girl, not some Goya. So his dad did what lots of parents did when their minor children elope. He forced an annulment. An annulment? Isn't that like a divorce? Well, it's more than a divorce. When you get divorced, you have an ex-wife or an ex-husband. But an annulment completely wipes away the legal fact of the marriage. In the eyes of the law, it never happened. You weren't married. Okay, so he has a clean record for his future, according right. to his dad's school of thought. Yeah, exactly. So Sherman was super furious at his dad, terrified that he'd lost the love of his life. When suddenly... He did lose her. She died of a brain tumor. Oh, that's terrible. And it's tragic, right? Mm-hmm. This left Sherman in a terrible spot as far as grieving goes. In his heart, his wife had died. But he'd technically never been married. So trying to get people to even understand his loss was difficult because he'd lost his wife who never was. And saying, my ex-girlfriend died, evokes a different level of sympathy and empathy from people than saying, my wife died. So he was in essence deeply grieving the wife he never had, while also trying to cope with the loss of his wife. That's so sad. And there are no words to help others understand what he was going through here. It reminds me of Chris Thomas in episode 26, The Accessory. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. That poor boy is raised by his grandparents. They'd been his parents his entire life. But then when they suddenly died, and he was inexplicably thrust into the very different world of his mother, who'd actually terminated her parental rights, so she was the mother who wasn't, mm -hmm. he finds himself in a different state, with a different lifestyle, different socioeconomic situation. Exactly. And his mother kept telling people his only struggle was that his grandparents had died, right? Yeah. So everyone around him assumed that mom had always been his mom and wasn't giving him the space or the grace to grieve for his actual circumstances. When both his parents died and he'd lost the life where he'd felt safe and comfortable. Exactly. So these words can be really important in the process of grief. That's very true. Words matter so much more than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. 
Grieving a death is always difficult, and when your very close relationship to the deceased isn't easily acknowledged, it can make it impossible to actually get over your loss. Because in essence, you never had it. Yeah, and I can see how this probably didn't help Sherman with his relationship with his dad or with alcohol. Exactly. Despite his grief, heavy drinking, and penchant for boy bands, he somehow made it through college and eventually went through law school. Wow. It's possible his dad was funding his lifestyle as long as he stayed in school, so he stayed in school. As much as Sherman resented his dad, I'm sure he was grateful to be able to make a living once he'd aged out of his boy bands. Yeah, I'm glad that he had a backup plan. Me too. Anyway... Sherman's dad was right. After another brief marriage that ended with his new wife getting run over by a car and dying. That's weird. I know. I don't know if that's even true, but this is what he told his daughter, Amy. Okay. Well, he said after that, he did meet this nice Jewish girl, Hadas Carmeli. And she was very pretty and vivacious. She had dark, kind eyes and raven hair. They seemed to be a good fit. She'd been born in Israel and immigrated to America as a child, so she was Jewish enough to satisfy his father. Hadass was a college graduate, too. She was a math teacher. She had passion, but was very kind, while Sherman was fairly easygoing, but on the inconsiderate side. And Hadass was patient with Sherman as he worked toward becoming a good, if not a sober, man. Hadass also had grit. She didn't take crap from anyone. She had high expectations of everyone, and she applied those same rules that she set for them to herself. That made less work for Sherman in general, because Hadass handled all of the tough stuff. They had a good connection, and she was amenable to getting out of town. So they headed to Anaheim, California to start their life together. Times were very rough with this couple. Easygoing Sherman lacked the motivation Hadass admired in people, and Hadass struggled with boundaries. So she was up in his business, but he didn't really have any business. Exactly. I mean, he'd passed the bar in 1979, the same year he copyrighted a bunch of his music that had never made him famous, (laughs) and he was still dreaming of being that rock star. But Hadass knew she was married to an attorney and that the attorney life was more suited to her dreams of having a family and a future. So there was always conflict. I can see that. I know. It's hard to let go of your childhood dreams, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Anyway, Hadass and Sherman had a son on January 21st, 1982 and named him Jesse Bernard Winnick. Like most couples, they hadn't realized how disruptive a new baby is to life. Hadass seemed to take it in stride, expecting Sherman to do the same. But he didn't seem to be up to the task. Hadass was as passionate about their baby as she was about everything else in her life. And Sherman seemed to be a bit mm, apathetic and resentful of this new phase in adulthood. They kept it all together for a little while, but Sherman up and left her when Jessie was about two years old. Two weeks later, Hadass discovered she was pregnant with their second child. That's so hard to realize you're going to have to raise this baby alone. Yes, and what do you say to your children? Mm Mm-hmm. He kind of left her in a pickle. He did. But Hadass would be okay. She was sure of it. She had friends here, and she could have this baby, care for Jesse, and maybe after the baby came, Sherman would decide he wanted to be back in the picture. She was okay with that. She loved him. Hadass didn't know it at the time, but he was never coming back, and she wasn't going to be staying in Anaheim. She started to realize that her life was a bit on the rough side for babies. She loved her friends, but she was a bit more conservative than they were. Then one night, while she was hanging at a party with her friends, tragedy struck. The older kids in the group had decided to go hang out in a different house than the parents and the little kids, which was usually fine. That's how things usually went with these parties. Everything was going swimmingly when they heard a gunshot. The parents had rushed over to the neighboring house to find one of their sons, a boy with Down syndrome, 
lying dead in a pool of blood surrounded by the now-repentant little jerks who'd convinced him to do this. That had to be horrible. I know. I can't even imagine. And to have them preying on someone who was already probably one of the weaker kids. Exactly. Well, the kids cried as they admitted that they cajoled him into playing a little game of Russian roulette with himself, and he had predictably lost. And Hadas was just done. I would be. I think she made the right choice there. I do, too. Because seeing this vulnerable boy lying dead did stir something inside of her. Even though these were her friends, she was pretty sure they were not her tribe. If Hadas was going to bring her children up in safety, she needed her tribe. She packed her small apartment, tucked Jesse into his car seat, and headed for the San Fernando Valley. Home. A place where she would have safety and stability for her children. She settled in, and shortly thereafter, little Amy Beth joined the family. Baby made three, but Jesse made two, and Sherman had pretty much ghosted them all. According to Amy in her interview with the podcast, The Stranger You Know, he didn't even pay child support, although Hadass would allow him parent time the few times he requested it. Hadass and Sherman never reunited. He just wanted to see his kids on occasion, and that was okay with her. Sherman went on to become a law school professor at Western State University. It's a fourth-tier law school located in Irvine, California. And then later he moved to teaching at South Coast College. Okay. So it turned out kind of okay for him. I think he had an okay life based on his standards. Mm -hmm. He fell in love with another woman, but they never locked it down. Mm -hmm. But they did have a child who seems to be doing fairly well. We can talk about him later, though. Okay. Okay, so... Hadass became a well-regarded algebra teacher, hosted summer foreign exchange students to bring in a little extra money, and wrote a book called GRF space XRSZ. <laughs> so it's like graph exercise mm -hmm. that helps kids visualize math problems. And in most stories, that would have been the end of it. But that didn't happen here because Hadass had Jesse. Jesse had always been a different kind of child. Even his preschool teacher had said he was different from the other kids. At three, he was very shy and withdrawn, failing to connect and make friends, and always feeling left out and crying that he was picked on. His mom was sure he would grow out of his shyness. He was such a smart boy. In fact, when Jesse was five, he made a bunch of treasure maps and insisted his mom take him to the grocery store so he could sell them. Like all unwitting parents of future troubled adults, Hadass thought this was cute and clever and fairly sophisticated for such a young child. She was very proud of her son, but she hated it when he would get angry and shove her around. He always seemed to use anger and shoving to get his way. That's a lot for such a young kid. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Their home was soon filled with vicious fights at bedtime, and Jesse's increasing physical aggression was becoming problematic. Also, despite his intelligence, his inner dialogue seemed to be off. Lots of self-pity to go along with that anger and entitlement, and also lots of lying. And he was also oh so disrespectful to his mother. Hadass seemed to let it go, unsure of how to handle aggression and or lies. For example, when Jesse was around nine years old, he downed a newly purchased bag of Oreo cookies and then proceeded to lie through his cookie-covered teeth to his mother, claiming Amy had eaten all of them. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I know. Hadass adroitly pointed out that the evidence was stacking up against Jesse. He then claimed he'd eaten one, and Amy had gobbled down the rest, trying to explain why he had cookies all over his teeth. Mm -hmm. Their mother apparently was at a loss of what to do next, so she sent them on their way. So it sounds like Jesse was already the household abuser. Was he also aggressive at school? At school, he was described as very short, very chubby, over-the-top dramatic, and very pushy. Okay. So, kind of? Mm-hmm. 
The kids didn't like him, and they didn't make any secret of it, and Jesse would complain a lot about how other kids treated him. It was the 90s, so everything that happened to him was labeled as bullying by his family. That is too bad. People really don't understand how to deal with bullies, and we label everything as bully, which is really one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Instead of calling someone the aggressor, we call them a name like bully, when it would really be more effective to move to the behaviors that are problematic and work on solving the actual problem we're facing instead of assigning these archetypes, right? Exactly. And... The other problem is that when you call one person a bully, you've also created a victim. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, okay, we're having a problem with these two children, here's the aggression, here's the reaction, what can we do about each part? We have a bully and we have a victim. And often the bully identifies as a bully and continues to be a bully, and the victim identifies as a victim and continues to be a victim their whole life. But what's really odd is a lot of times... Tricky bullies can look like the victim, Mm -hmm. and they take great delight in doing that, in setting people up to look like a bully when they were actually the bully. Bully is just such a generic bucket term. Yeah, and it could be so simple. You know, we have name-calling, right? We Mm -hmm. have that going on here. And we could say, instead of saying, wow, I know Evan keeps calling you names, and that hurts, but I've talked to Evan, and he's going to stop, so let's work on a plan to help you feel safe in the future. Maybe you leave the situation, maybe you go hang out with different people, you know. Instead of having everyone in the school and the parents focused on behaviors and problem solving, we say, I'm so sorry Evan bullied you, and now we have a fight on your hands. Because, of course, no one wants their child being called a bully. Mm-hmm. And no one's in problem-solving mode. So the victim and the parents are defensive and worried about the safety of the victim. And the aggressor has this label that they may or may not internalize and then feel like they just should behave badly because that's what a bully does. And it's just a much bigger problem than it had to be. I know. It seems like using the phrase bully creates more problems than it ever solves. Yeah, because instead of saying, hmm... Billy is a kid who pushed another kid into a mud hole. We have Billy is a bully. And from there on out, he will be treated as a bully. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, those kids are just bullies. And it kind of stops the conversation. It doesn't go into any problem solving. It just doesn't really help. Once you use the term bully and put it on the table, everything stops as far as conversation regarding how to stop a bad behavior, don't you think? Yeah. And it's really sad because I think that Jesse really did internalize this uh, victim role. And then no matter how badly he behaves, how violent he is toward other people, he still sees himself as a victim. Right, right. It's like I once read a newspaper article that talked about a woman who was suing her child Mm -hmm. because she had beaten the child and hurt her hand and she wanted the child to be responsible for the pain and the break that she had incurred in her hand. Yeah. It's like, what length can you take it to? (laughs) (laughs) And I hate the term victim mentality because it gets applied to all sorts of things that are not victim mentality. But Mm -hmm. this is what they're talking about when someone is so convinced that they're the victim in every situation that they can be committing acts of violence against their family members and still think they're the victim. Right, right. And so I would say, yes, Jesse was acting out in an aggressive manner at school. Yes. I would say, yes, Jesse was acting very aggressively toward his mother at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So what did his mother do about this bullying episode? (laughs) She did what every parent does who is told that their child is a victim. She put him in karate lessons. Oh, that's what he needed was more effective violence, right? Right. Kind of sad. Yeah, it's really sad. And not really a proper way to teach self-defense to a child who is having a problem at school. No, and a big part of karate and most martial arts is supposed to be that you don't learn how to use physical force until you've mastered that internal self-control, which he clearly hadn't. Right, and it was clearly self-control, which may have helped him in the long term had he internalized the Mm self-control instead of just the tools. Right. 
So we've talked a lot about how Jesse was using anger and physical aggression to get his way with his mom, but was he the same way with Amy? He was most definitely an equal opportunity abuser. When everyone was home, he was less abusive. When only one person was home with him, his terroristic behaviors would escalate. He treated Amy equally badly, once slicing her hand with a knife just to prove his point, once sneaking up behind her and karate kicking her hard between her legs so he could, as he put it, see if that hurts girls. Wow. Yeah, he was constantly lying to her, setting her up for trouble, cutting her down, along with all the physical abuse. And he was older than Amy, so he would push her into a lot of compromising positions. For example, Amy says he used threats and blackmail to force her to help him sell copies of Playboy when she was 11 or 12 years old. And about the same time, so remember, she's 11 or 12, he's about 15 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. He blackmailed her into performing sex acts on herself with a variety of objects as he watched. She confronted him about sexually abusing her later, and he denied this, saying no court would convict him because he never actually really touched her. That's horrible and also not true. That's a distinction only in his own mind. I know. I realize that. But Amy didn't. She was filled with shame and guilt, and she was too embarrassed to tell anyone what he'd forced her to do. She didn't even tell her mom at that point. It's so sad. I know. He'd done it while their mom was at work, and they were supposed to be in school. So it was super complicated in her head. She wasn't sure if she'd been sexually abused or not. She just felt very ashamed of what had happened. And she'd cut school with him, so... She felt that no matter what she did, if she tried to disclose, Mm -hmm. she'd be in big trouble. Yeah, because in her head, it's possible that cutting school was just as bad, right? Mm Mm-hmm, exactly. It's so hard for kids, especially because the abuser will always tell them it's not a big deal. Uh Uh-huh. It reminds me of that saying, the wood remembers and the axe forgets. They Mm -hmm. never really acknowledge the pain or the harm they inflict on others. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. But wasn't this about the same time that Jesse tried to commit suicide during Passover? Yeah, we can talk about that next if you'd like. Yeah, I think this is a good spot. Okay. So, we probably should have done a PSA before this, but... The story only gets worse from here. Mm -hmm. So we think it's wise to warn you and let you know that if you or anyone you love is living in fear of or in the aftermath of sexual abuse, assault, or any form of domestic violence, there are many people standing by who want to help you be safe. There's a hotline called the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. Again, that number is 1-800-656-HOPE. Four six seven three. It's free, it's confidential, and they're there 24-7, 365 days per year. Unfortunately, they don't seem to have an online chat yet, but their website is rain, R-A-I-N-N.org. So it's just rain with two N's. And I hope that you are safe. Me too. Okay, so according to his sister's book, Working for Justice... Jesse was first institutionalized in 1997, the spring after his 15th birthday. As she recalls, Jesse was mad because his dad had flaked out on coming to visit over Passover, as promised. And, as usual, Jesse was taking out his anger on his mother. Jesse really had some awful anger issues. He'd screamed at her, called her names, and threatened her. And Hadass had decided that, as a consequence... Jesse could just stay home while she and Amy went to her sister's house to celebrate Passover. Well, that seems like a good parenting choice, right? Mm -hmm. Giving him a natural consequence and some time alone to calm down, right? Yeah, that works for most kids, but this was Jesse, and sane parenting didn't work with him. Three hours later, when they returned from their celebration, instead of a contrite boy who was ready to stop abusing his mother, they found Jesse moaning in pain in his bedroom, lying naked in his rumpled, peed-in bed. 
He was hallucinating and scratching his own skin raw, raving about how he needed to help his friend James Bond save the dolphins. He'd ingested an entire bottle of Advil. His mother called for help, and the paramedics showed up to save him. He was admitted to the hospital where they pumped his stomach and held him for observation. He raged about wanting to be dead, which resulted in his being transferred to a mental hospital for juveniles. Amy recalls he seemed out of place there, the short, violently angry, chubby kid who'd just shaved his head among the catatonic, depressed kids. He truly seemed deranged in comparison. He was released after two weeks, but was returned after another episode shortly thereafter. They had diagnosed him with bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and even Tourette's, and encouraged Hadass to get him help. Hadass, who was fairly strict with Amy, keeping her busy with schoolwork and household chores and holding her feet to the fire with homework, became comparatively lenient with Jesse. His diagnoses would give Hadass reasons to coddle him, excuse his behaviors, and try to find new ways to deal with his outbursts. They weren't caused by him. They were caused by his Tourette's, right? Yeah, kind of. And yeah, Jesse was very good at wheedling his way out of trouble, saying that those bad behaviors weren't him. They were all his mental illness. But that's not really a thing. I know. That's exactly right. So is it possible that she was not really being indulgent, but was just afraid of him and trying to keep the peace? Very possible, but it was most likely a combination. Okay. She was indulgent and putting up with abuse out of love and a sense of duty. But this kid was hell on earth and she could find no help and no relief. I mean, according to the New York Post, he punched holes in walls, slashed tires, and even threatened to kill his mom on the regular. He once chased after his mom with an aerosol can and a lighter, threatening to burn her alive. It's horrifying. He sounds like he was a truly awful person on all fronts. But it also seems like a lot of this escalated around the age of 15. Yes, and it seems fairly common for kids to start to come into their own, whatever that own is going to look like, as puberty sets in. So now, Jesse's in the ninth grade and becoming more and more unmanageable. Hadass couldn't ask him to do chores, complete his homework, or leave his sister alone without having a big fight on her hands. He made life exhausting. Hadass found herself walking on eggshells around him as his manipulative anger increased. He was a really bad kid, but his mom persisted in seeing a good boy. He started punching those holes in the walls when he was angry and telling his victim that that could have been their face. I know, he was kind of a mean kid. Mm -hmm. He would come to punch something like 20 holes in the walls of their home. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't Hadass be fairly worried about taking in a foreign exchange summer student with Jesse in the house? I would think so, but she did continue doing that. I'm not sure how or if they contained Jesse during the summers, but I do know that foreign exchange trips are billed as something your child will never experience in their own family. And based on my own daughter's experience, I believe that, but not in a good way. (laughs) She came home with some fairly hair-raising stories about what happened during her several-day stay with a family in France. And she definitely was exposed to some activities she'd never encountered at home. So I'm not sure how Jesse behaved or didn't behave during those exchanges. I just don't know. That's interesting. Was he doing drugs? Yes. He used both drugs and alcohol. His drugs of choice were cocaine, marijuana, and prescription drugs. Oof, that's a lot. It's a ton. His sister Amy claims that rather than self-medicating to mitigate his mental issues... He was using the drugs to purposively amplify them. He refused to use medication that could control his manic episodes. He would take cocaine instead, saying that the regular drugs would dull his superpowers. It's not a superpower to abuse people. No. I wish he would have learned that. Mm -hmm. As Jesse entered high school, he was constantly getting into fights, being physical with his mother, earning bad grades, hanging with the bad kids and making trouble. Around this time, Hadass experienced some kind of accident at school that injured her and left her temporarily confined to a wheelchair. This was the moment that the beleaguered school that Jesse went to 
mm-hmm. took 16-year-old Jesse aside and suggested he drop out and just complete his GED. Wow. Yeah. They just were sick of him, I guess. Mm-hmm. They were. He had a ton of behavior problems at that point, but Hadass was furious. I would be. Mm-hmm. Me too. She tried to fight it, but that's exactly what Jesse did. He dropped out of high school and completed his GED. But that didn't work out very well for him. He was too young to drive, and his mom, in a wheelchair, couldn't drive. So they were trapped home together. Jesse's rage and physical abuse escalated against her. He constantly threatened to tip her over, and at least once he yanked her out of her wheelchair, leaving her sprawled on the floor, unable to get up. This is when Amy, now in middle school, found herself becoming the buffer between her mother and her brother. Sometimes she could placate Jesse and divert his attention. She often found herself doing the emotional heavy lifting for both of them. I've noticed that before. When you have a mentally ill or extremely violent sibling in the home, everything seems to get shifted. The other kids are conscripted into protecting the safety of the family, and boundaries between the adults and the children are at the least blurred and often breached. Mm Mm-hmm. And the kids find themselves with less attention from their parents for kid things because mom is busy trying to handle the problem child. Prom is not nearly as important as keeping people safe in their own home, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So you end up with this more intense connection between the non-abusive child and their parent because they have to keep close tabs on each other for safety and security. That's true. Yeah, and it's hard, and it seems to be even harder if the parent is single. There's a lot of co-parenting that goes on, and society pushes this oh you mean co-parenting like with the nurturing or the non-angry child Mm -hmm. and the parent to try to stay safe and keep control of the violent child yeah they need help in these families they do and they need support from other adults Mm -hmm. there seems to be a tacit agreement that in a single parent home it's fine that the other children's childhoods are sacrificed in the name of societal comfort They don't want the neighbors to have a problem. They don't want the police to have to be called. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to uh, pay taxes for social services. So this other child ends up having to pick up some of the slack. Despite the fact that the dad and his absence is rarely mentioned, and he's usually not criticized for not actually doing his job as a parent, being there and taking care of it and doing the hard work, while these other kids are feeling the restrictions and obligations that he just dropped. That is so true and so awful. It is. And sometimes it's the mother who leaves. But Mm -hmm. I say he because we just keep seeing the dads leaving and the other children trying to pick up slack that a child can't pick up. Yeah, that's really true. But as I said, Hadass was very indulgent with Jesse, always cutting him breaks. And this can work with some kids, but not with kids like Jesse. Despite Jesse's abusive and manipulative behaviors, Hadass worked hard to help her son figure it all out. She gave him endless chances, and he squandered each and every one of them. He lied a lot, he screamed mercilessly at his mother, and he made credible murder threats. She tried to find help through the schools, doctors, private therapists, but he was abusive and intransigent with them, too. He found himself literally kicked out of doctors and therapists' offices for his abusive behavior. Avenues for help closed one at a time as Jesse abused and terrorized everyone who tried to help him until, finally, he'd been deemed untreatable by everyone. They all shrugged their shoulders and told Hadass to take him home. There was no one left willing to help. Hadass and Amy were on their own with him. There was no help. He was a tiny terrorist, and he terrified both his mom and his sister. His trip to the mental hospital in jail would become the only respite Hadass and Amy would ever receive. That's so sad. Yeah. I know that this does happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Family services, um, therapists, school counselors all throw their hands up and say, oh, they're not treatable, take them home. And no one thinks about what that looks like for the people who are taking them home. Yeah. So it's difficult. It is. And there doesn't seem to be any space to give these caregivers space. Mm -mm. And there doesn't seem any right answer as to what to do that would be best for this child and for the family. Yeah. So the third time Jesse was committed, he was sent to the Center for Troubled Youth instead of the mental ward that he was going to before Mm -hmm. because his behavior was becoming more and more concerning. 
Jesse had started secretly collecting knives, throwing stars, and other weapons. His sister wandered into his room one day to ask him about something, and he ended up shooting her in the butt with what she thought was a gun, but it was, quote-unquote, only a BB gun. Wow. It still had to hurt. I know. I'm sure Hadass confiscated the weapons she found in his room that day, but both his mother and his sister were feeling very unsafe in their home after that. I never did understand parents who had troubled children and decided that letting them collect or purchase weapons was a great idea. It seems like they really do feed the wrong wolf. What do you mean? Well, there's an old Native American legend that speaks about duality of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So it goes like this. Uh, One evening, an old man told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside people. He said, my son, the battle is between the two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is made of anger, envy, jealousy, greed, arrogance, lies, and ego. And the other wolf is good. It's joy, love, hope, empathy, generosity, and truth. The grandson thought for a minute and asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And his grandfather replied, the wolf you feed. That's exactly right. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, it's a struggle for all of us, I think. We can all feel that duality in ourselves where we have to nurture the person we want to be. Yeah, I think that's really true. And sadly, Jesse was choosing the wrong wolf. Mm -hmm. He was growing up, and although his mom was trying to hold space where he could be the better person, feeding the good wolf, this wasn't what he chose at all. No, he continued to choose to feel angry and picked on and... And entitled. Yeah, and engage in acts of violence and harming other people and taking out every frustration on his mother or his sister instead of learning to be grateful to his mother and sister. Mm -hmm. Instead of learning to be part of society, he decided to just be angrier and angrier. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to escalate with kids like this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to dismiss his mental illness, but I do think that even with mental or physical illnesses, you do have some choices. You can Mm -hmm. choose to take your medication, you can choose to engage in treatment, or you cannot, Mm -hmm. knowing that you'll get worse if you don't. Yeah, I agree with that. Anyway, Jesse never did return to juvie, but not because he was doing better. He wasn't. He'd celebrated his 18th birthday, and he was now ready for real jail. Oh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. The first time Jesse went to jail, his mother had called the police on him. He was raging and he'd punched a hole in the wall. Hadass was frightened for her life and called the police when she couldn't get Jesse to settle down. Jesse and his mother seemed to have settled into that age-old cycle of domestic abuse where Jesse would explode into an abusive ball of flame, Hadass would call for help once she was worried for her life, and Jesse would be hauled off to jail. Then, Jesse would explain that it wasn't him. It was his mental illness acting up. This was something he couldn't help. He'd promise he'd try to keep it all under control in the future, and he'd say he was never going to abuse Hadass or Amy again, and he would try to make it up to his mom, which seemed to placate Hadass. But Amy was not one bit placated. On Discovery ID, what if he gets out, Amy talks about how Jesse would approach her every time he got in trouble for a violent episode and try to scheme with her to try to kill their mother. She said this happened at least 20 times. But Hadass would seem to discount this information and Amy did not have any decision-making authority, only the authority to help with the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. Again, she's still the child. Right, right. It's such a strange dual role that these kids play. Yeah, well, they don't get to be a child, but they don't get to be an adult. So they have responsibilities of an adult, but the authority of a child. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Mm-hmm. And Hadass, knowing full well it was going to happen again and hoping against hope that it wouldn't, would drop the charges and invite Jesse back home. And Jesse would start in again on the insults and the rudeness until it all escalated into a full-blown rage. And then there we are in the cycle of abuse. Yeah, it all starts over again. Yeah. But to be fair, what options did Hadass have? Amy was seeing we need to keep ourselves safe, but mm-hmm. Hadass, as an adult, as a mother, was seeing that Jesse didn't have a lot of choices. He would either be living with them or he would be homeless. Yeah. And, you know, what kind of mother would she be if she let her 18-year-old child be homeless? 
I know that seems so complicated and so heartbreaking. They don't have choices that can keep their child safe and them safe too. She can only keep one of her children safe. Mm -hmm. But she is telling herself that she can keep Amy safe from him, but she can't keep him safe on the street. And our society just really doesn't have a safe place to put even young children who have problems like Jesse did. Families are left to deal with these children on their own or allow them to be homeless Mm -hmm. or in systems that are overloaded and generally not very safe. Right. And the judicial system is meant to protect their future, right? They want to make sure that when they grow up, there will be no record of this. Mm -hmm. So the kids get kind of a slap on the wrist. And their behavior escalates because they know that no one wants to give them hard consequences. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And the parents, like Hadass, are usually begging the courts to go easy on them because they want the child to have a good future. That's very true. That is so hard. And it's really hard because she has another child. And Amy decided, even after graduating high school, to stick around and try to keep the family functioning as well mm-hmm. as it was. I.e. keep her mother safe. Yeah. To, and not dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the choice she was making. But sometimes, and especially in larger families, you see more than one reaction. Mm-hmm. Some of the kids leave mm-hmm. and cut off ties with their parents because they can't handle the stress or they just don't want to be there for the end they see coming. Especially when they grow up and have children. They don't want to bring their children back to that destructive person. Mm-hmm. So it's so hard because the parent is now choosing not only between the safety of their children, but between having a relationship with either their child who's abusing them or their child who's trying to protect them. That seems like such a loss, no matter what she chooses. Yeah, it's a really, really tough position to be in. And I wish that as a society, we would get it together and figure out how to support the family enough that she didn't have to choose. Right. I agree that having a child like Jesse is very toxic to a young family. And we should mention that Sherman, although not around, didn't seem to be helping with this at all. No, I don't think he wanted to do anything that was hard. And no. this was hard. Mm-hmm. I think you're right there. Through all of this, Hadass and Amy were suffering in relative silence. They were trying to keep everything private. They were trying to protect Jesse's future. And Hadass was determined to protect and buffer those bad behaviors from the residents of Calabasas, where they lived. Oh, aren't the Menendez brothers from Calabasas? Yes, they did live in Calabasas until they moved to that Beverly Hills home where the boys murdered their parents. Ah. At the time, Jesse was seven and Amy was four, and I don't think they lived in Calabasas at that time. I think they had moved around a lot before they actually got to Calabasas. Oh, okay. The Menendez family had actually lived a couple of houses down from where the Winnicks lived. And Eric had transferred from Calabasas High to Beverly Hills High after the move. Small world. No matter where you're from, right? Yeah. Anyway, these guys lived in an upper-class, mostly Jewish neighborhood, except for wealthy neighbors like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, the Kardashians, and Drake. You have to be careful what you share with people in that neighborhood. Yeah. Hadass was trying to preserve his place as well as hers in society. Remember, she tutored the children of these people. Yeah. She didn't want to be seen as someone who couldn't manage her own household. Right. Or she would not be tutoring anyone. Mm-hmm. And she, like most mothers, was trying to create a space in which he could work on getting better and maturing out of his violent outbursts. But... What most people who are doing this buffering thing don't realize until it's too late is that the wall they build to keep the loved one buffered is the very wall that traps them and keeps them from getting the help they need when that loved one escalates. Yeah. And that's what was happening here. Hadass and Amy kept that private hell to themselves as much as they could, and Amy spent much of her childhood, like you said, living in that child-adult role. Mm-hmm. trying to keep the family secret, getting stuck trying to keep Jesse's violence under control, being fairly isolated. And Amy seemed to be trauma-bonded to her brother. She wrote him a letter the second time he was in the mental ward, mm-hmm. proclaiming him to be her best friend and begging him to hang in there for her sake. Jesse cherished that letter and kept it in his wallet for more than a decade. 
That's so sad. And it's hard because I'm sure that she did have a lot of love for him and was afraid that he was going to hurt himself again. Mm-hmm. He was 15. She was 12 the first time he tried to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And that's scary because you're not safe, but he's not safe. Right. Right. It's so hard to describe some of the family functioning or dysfunctioning that's going on in this family. Mm-hmm. But this case really illustrates how damaging this is to the child who remains, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, she went through so much. She loved him but was afraid of him. Mm-hmm. She was responsible for him but couldn't make choices about him. And because he was older, she was not really responsible for him. Yeah, it's, so it's just a very complicated relationship. And, of course, she loved her mother and felt mm-hmm. like they were working together. Mm-hmm. She was in a bad spot. Yeah. But as far as hiding Jesse's abusive behavior, Hadass and Amy were only kidding themselves. The police were well aware of how abusive Jesse was, as were the neighbors who could hear him shouting, punching walls, and throwing things, although they never said a word about it to the family. Hadass never mentioned her son's abusive proclivities when talking to her friends and colleagues at Canoga Park High, where she worked. Everyone knew about Amy there. They knew about all of her accomplishments, but they didn't know a lot about Jesse. When you live with an abuser, you learn not to tell people about what's going on at home. You find that disclosing leaves you looking like a lesser person somehow to casual friends and acquaintances. And again, you don't want to ruin your loved one's chances to eventually turn around and live peacefully in the world. But the kids were growing up. And Jesse was a 5 foot 5 inch, 180 pound bundle of bad temper. And he needed to do something. Jesse had obtained his GED, but he didn't seem to have any direction. He didn't have a plan or even an idea of a plan. Jesse applied for supplemental social security insurance, basing his claim on his poor decisions, terrible temper, and inability to hold down a job. He could get a job. He was completely employable, but he couldn't keep a job because he refused to behave and simply do his job. Hmm. I don't know a lot about SSI, but I don't really think that would qualify him. You're correct. SSI has super stringent requirements regarding a person's inability to work, and it isn't based on them being anger boys or buttheads. There was no way he was going to qualify for SSI. (laughs) Hadass wanted him to learn self-discipline, needed him to find a career he could get behind, and kind of needed a break. So she did what many parents of wayward boys have done. She encouraged him to join the Army. And he did just that on October 7, 2005. 23-year-old Jesse went off to boot camp and peace reigned in the home. For less than 10 weeks. Oh, dear. Yeah. Jesse fell ill, wound up in the infirmary, and, like a bad penny, showed up back home. He'd hated boot camp. It was stressful and physical, and he claimed he was teased because of his Star of David tattoo. A 23-year-old was being teased? I know. Anyway, Jesse knew it was going to really push his mother's buttons when he claimed he was persecuted for being Jewish. And he used that often. But the army is pretty insistent that their recruits are their recruits. And he was required to return, which he did for a few weeks. And then he ran away from boot camp. You mean he went AWOL? Mm-hmm. And he was aided and abetted by no other than his mother, who bought him a plane ticket and picked him up at the L.A. airport in the middle of the night. He told everyone he'd been dishonorably discharged, but records indicate that didn't happen until October 10, 2010, when he was dishonorably discharged and he was already in jail fighting murder charges. Wow. I can't believe she helped him run away. Did she not understand that's a crime? It is beyond me. I think that's when you think about boundaries. Mm -hmm. She didn't understand the boundaries. She didn't understand that she needed to let him be an adult. Mm-hmm. And to her own detriment, she went and picked him up. Yeah, he needed to experience the consequences, and he needed to finish boot camp. Right. The and army is not something you can just quit. No. And if you're in the army, you're not homeless. She should have just said stay. She should have. Yeah. Amy, of course, was much, much more successful than her older angry brother. 
She was working and just finishing up her college degree in 2007. Her mom beamed with pride when she spoke of her. Jesse continued his profligate life of anger and crime. He really liked Facebook, which was still a fairly new thing, wherein he listed his occupation as personal trainer and pharmaceutical distributor, which was sort of true because he distributed drugs on the street. He didn't date. He didn't work. He didn't go to school. He claimed he was hiding out from the army, and he continued to just torment his family. In May of 2007, Jesse was arrested for making criminal threats, which is a federal crime. This was that time that he'd chased Hadass through the house with the aerosol can and the lighter threatening to burn her alive. In July, he was allowed to plead no contest to a reduced misdemeanor charge of making criminal threats. He'd already learned that no matter what he did, he'd be allowed to plead no contest to a lesser crime and get a lighter conviction. This became his thing. He was convinced that his domestic violence wasn't really that terrible. He knew he could always get a deal once he entered the judicial system. And every time he went to jail, his mother and his sister would faithfully visit him at least every other weekend. Hadass, out of duty to and love for her son, Amy, out of concern and love for her mother. After one of those visits to jail, Amy and Hadass had a serious talk. Hadass was trapped. She loved Jesse and felt her only choice was to let him return home once he was released from jail. His only other option was homelessness, and she couldn't do that to her own son. But she already knew the score. She understood the inevitable conclusion. She confided to Amy that she'd purchased an accidental life insurance policy that was only in Amy's name. She'd already checked, and the policy most definitely covered murder. She wanted Amy to have the extra money when, maybe if, the time came. Amy recalls her gut reaction of denial and reassuring her mother that Jesse wouldn't be killing anyone. I can't imagine having that conversation. I know, and there are so many red flags here. If you know they are going to kill you, don't bring them home from the army. Don't keep them in your home. I think that it, she fell into the trap that a lot of mothers and maybe fathers, but we see mostly mothers doing this, fall into of how can I be a good mother and therefore a good person if I let my child fall into homelessness, if I let my child fall into bad circumstances. And she decided that she could be a good mother to both her children by letting one kill her and letting the other have a good inheritance. And that's not being a good mother at all. Amy misses her mother every day. I'm sure she'd much rather have her mother than the money. Mm Mm-hmm. Mother and daughter talked for some time and decided that maybe Jesse should find a friend to live with. Jesse spent the weeks immediately after his release from jail couch surfing and living on the streets. I mean, that's good. That's better than at home being violent. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think she's a good mother. She's making solid choices with a 25-year-old son. Yeah. I mean, at some point, he has to figure out how to take care of himself if he can't be kind to the people at home. And not abuse them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, eventually, Hadassah's heart couldn't take it any longer. She felt so bad about letting him be homeless, so she allowed him to return home. I know she loved him, and as a parent, felt responsible for him, and I'm sure felt like he had a hard life because he had so many diagnoses. But he wasn't a child anymore. He was 25 years old. But I also, I understand on some level. I don't know how I would sleep at night if my child were on the streets and begging Mm -hmm. me to let him come home. Yeah. But not having a son like Jesse, I can't imagine the pressure that he put on her. And I think that, again, our society is laying way too many burdens at the feet of parents with violent adult children. You know, the shoulds and woulds about what being a parent is. They're deeply ingrained in all of us. But at some point, Shouldn't self-preservation be more important? I think so. And it is so multi-layered. And being a good parent is supposed to mean being there for your child. And our society is really bad at teaching us that once all of your feelings of self-preservation do kick in, like they did here when she finally said he couldn't come home, all notions of parenthood should fly out the window. Instead, many victims feel feel this deep and enduring 
I don't know, guilt or fear or lack of who they typically are. For instance, I'm a good and caring parent or partner, and they let that abuser back into their home. Sometimes it's because they know deep down that this person is completely dangerous to them, and sometimes it's because they fear that person who they kicked out is a monster, and that monster might go on to murder a completely innocent person on the streets. So the parent is feeling extended responsibility Mm -hmm. for what this kid's doing. Yeah. But I think every parent needs to read The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. We need to listen to our guts, and we need to know when, at the age of 25, our child should no longer be living with us. Yeah. Another book that comes to mind is Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. mm -hmm. You don't always need proof to know what you know. And I don't believe that very many books out there can actually save your life. But I think both of these books might do exactly that. I think so, too. And the other part of the equation is being able to work through all that guilt and shame that as a parent you chose to live and care for your other children instead of allowing an abusive child to murder you and possibly those other children. Like in this case, if Amy had gone home, there is no guarantee that he wouldn't have just murdered them both. I agree. I think that it's a good thing she didn't go home, even though a lot of people have been hateful to her about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Her going home probably wouldn't have saved her mother and may have made her another victim. Yep, I totally believe that. And I hate to bring this up, but kicking them out, if they're an adult, because you should never kick a minor out. Right. It's one of the most dangerous times in an abusive relationship. And we've seen this in all types of domestic violence cases, including several of our own parasites. Yes. You have to be careful in how you get them out of your house because the violence tends to increase. And many people are murdered right at that juncture or shortly thereafter. There aren't any good answers here, and that's the danger and the frustration. Getting safely past that break is literally the biggest challenge in finding your way to safety. You have to remember that abusers are dealing in power, and kicking them out is a dangerous threat because as they see it, you are taking power from them. That's so true. Yeah, so... If you're ready, eviction is not something you should mention in passing or give time frames for. (laughs) For sure. It needs to happen quickly, and if possible, you should leave quietly. Mm -hmm. And someone else should get them out of the house. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to domestic abuse that we cannot cover here. But if you need help or advice or feel unsafe in your own home, there is help out there. If your abuser is a minor child, it's a bit more difficult But these people can help you understand your options and show you the path away from your abuser. The number is 1-800-799-7233. That's the domestic violence hotline, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And for this one, you can also text them. And their texting number is 88788. And they'll get help, or you can even Google domestic violence hotline and find a chat link. But please don't stay with an abuser. Your life depends on it. Thanks. And I want to circle back to what you said about minors. If you have an abusive minor child and that child belongs in more than one household through divorce or whatever, all parents should carefully consider which home that child should be living in. And one more issue to keep in mind since we're talking about parasite, domestic violence, and getting kicked out. Our research indicates that for kids under the age of 24 who have committed parasite, Approximately 4% of these kids murdered as a direct result of being kicked out of the house. The majority of them were kids whose ages were 22 or 23 years old. We don't have all of the stats for adult children over the age of 24 because we don't have the funding to hire extra people to get that work done quickly. So we've concentrated on the youthful parasite offenders for now. Which is why we ask for your support and donations at the end of every podcast, because we want to get more solid data to help people make choices. Exactly. And like I said, we haven't completed the data sets for the adults, but of the 1,378 adult parasite offenders we have, which is 24 and older, 397 of them do have motivations that we've identified, the primary Mm -hmm. motivation. And of those 397 offenders... Almost 10% of them, so a higher number, murdered because they were either getting kicked out 
or their parents were withdrawing financial support as the primary reason. The oldest one we found so far was 59 years old. Wow. Keep in mind, Jesse wasn't getting kicked out that we know of, but he had just barely gotten back into the home after being kicked out. So he knew it could happen. Mm-hmm. None of this is exact science, and we'll never know if Hadass was threatening to kick him out again that night. And getting kicked out isn't the primary motivation code for Jesse's case. His was unmitigated anger. That's how it was coded. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have proof that Hadass was trying to kick him out again. But I just feel that this was really important to mention. Yeah, I think so too. Anyway... We're out of time for this episode. Come back next time to hear about the night that Hadass was murdered and how Jesse continues to make his sister's life difficult from jail and the four long years it took this case to reach resolution. Finally, we're dedicating this episode to Maggie. May you run wild and free in the great beyond, little peaches. For this episode, we'd like to thank Jade Brown for the music, of course, and Bonnie's Block of Crime, the Los Angeles Daily News, the CBS News, the Daily Breeze, the Daily News, the Pasadena Star News, Facebook, the Cinemaholic, the book Working for Justice, One Family's Tale of Murder, Betrayal, and Healing by Amy Chesler, which is Amy in this story, Jesse's sister. It's an excellent book. The podcast, The Stranger You Know, We found a new favorite podcast to listen to ourselves there. Mm -hmm. Discovery IDs, Evil Lives Here series, episode two, What If He Gets Out, and Murderpedia. We have used all of these as source material for this episode. If you like our podcast, we'd be over the moon if you would follow us or like it on your favorite platform. This has been the Parasite Podcast. And remember, always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.